This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. In the Word of God to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Today is the, the last day that we're going to be, we're going to complete this series of studies on Moses, the man of God. Uh, I think this is part 17 this morning, part 18 tonight will be the final part. And uh, so it's coming to an end. It's taken us a long time to get here because of breaks between and various speakers, but uh, it's, the finale is tonight. Now, in Numbers chapter 21, God asked Moses to do something that was really, really strange. Very unusual indeed. Nothing unusual about God asking prophets to do unusual things. He did that throughout Scripture. But this is really strange. And uh, not only was it a tremendous blessing and brought great deliverance to the people in Israel at that time, but even today... Even for us right now, it is valid, it is real, and it's still doing a fantastic work all over the world, even today. But let me just give you a little bit of a backdrop. This came at a period of great difficulty in Moses' life, a time of great loss, a time of personal loss, a time of ministry loss. Uh, his brother and his sister, Aaron and Miriam, both died, it's recorded in the previous chapter, chapter 20, which we're not going to read. And so that was a tremendous loss to him because even though they had faults and feelings, which we talked about in this series, and even though there was times he had to pray for them and intercede because God was going to kill them, but he loved them and he really deeply loved them. And so to have that loss was, must have been difficult for him. But not only that, he had a great ministry loss. Because you remember, and we talked about it in one of our series, how that God said to him, because the people were complaining about no water, go out and speak to the rock. Now, the first time this happened, he was to strike the rock. But this time, he was only to speak to the rock. That's all he had to do. But instead of that, he got angry, and he got frustrated, and he got mad at the people. And he spoke to the people, and he castigated them. And, and then he struck the rock twice. Of course, the rock was a type of Christ, and Christ only had to be stricken once. And because of that, God said, I will not let you lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And he had come so near, literally so near, and yet so far. And so there's a, there's a sadness to that. And so it was a time of great loss. And even though there was a victory over the Canaanites, in that particular chapter and into chapter 21. Uh, even though there was a victory over the Canaanites in the very place where they, had, where they had lost a battle 40 years before in the very same area. And yet something else happened because where they were geographically, they needed to go further and the most direct route was through the land of Edom. But the king of Edom wouldn't let them go. He point blank refused. And even though Moses said to him, your brother Israel, uh, we have had great difficulty coming through this wilderness. It was real hardships. 
but if you just let us go through, we'll, we'll just walk on the, on the king's highway. I mean, there's two million of them. We'll not trample your, your, your ground. We'll not trample. We'll not trample your vineyards or your crops. We'll just keep on the highway. And even if our cattle drink some of your water, we'll pay for it. We'll give you good money. I mean, he couldn't do more than that. But even with that, the king of Edom says, no way. In fact, if you come onto our land, we will send our armies against you. Now, here's the reason. The Edomites were the... They came from the lineage of Esau. And so they came from the lineage of Esau. And you remember that Esau and Jacob are twin brothers from Isaac. And the animosity between those twin brothers was terrible, wasn't it? Over, over the birthright. In fact, it was so bad that Jacob had to leave uh, and get out of town for many, many years because Esau wanted to kill him. And, and even though they did make up then in the end, but that animus, that animosity between them as two brothers, that, that came into their families and came into their tribes and came into their peoples to, to hundreds of years later, that animosity is still there. And so they had to make this long circuitous route around Edom, which was very, very difficult. It was very uneven, difficult ground to, to walk on, and it was tiring and exhausting, but they had to do that because uh, Edom would have let them through. Now, of course, they could have took on Edom, but God wouldn't let them do that at that particular point. By the way, the Amorites tried that later on. They must have realized that the Edomites wouldn't let them through, and they tried not to let them through, but God says, wipe them out, and they did. They took them on. But here they had to make this big circuitous route, and that brings us now to uh, verse 4 of chapter 21. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And what made this worse, by the way, was they actually had to go back into the wilderness to go around Edom. That's where they had spent 40 years coming out of. The last thing they wanted to do was ever go back in there again, but they had to do this. And so they went around by the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Uh, and my margin says very impatient. And so they were angry and they were impatient and they were frustrated. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and there's no water, and their soul loathe this worthless bread. Now this is the new generation that's come through. The old generation of unbelievers, of gripers and mourners and complainers. God said, you're going to stay in the wilderness until you all die off. And then anybody under 20 years old, they'll live on. So this is the new generation. But notice here that the same trait that was in the old generation is in the new generation. Uh, the first opportunity, they begin to gripe and complain against God and against Moses, and there's no food and there's no water, and we're tired and we're weary. Why have you brought us here? We'd be far better going back to Egypt than dying in this wilderness. The exact same things that the old generation had said. And they said, this worthless bread. Imagine this worthless bread. This is the manna from heaven. This is the supernatural food that God gave them every day for 40 years. That in Psalm 78, the psalmist said, this is angel's food, the bread from heaven. And he says, we loathe it, we detest it, it's hateful to us. So we need to be very careful as believers that 
all God's daily blessings that we just don't get blasé about it and take it for granted. We may not hate it, but sometimes we just take it for granted and don't even think about it. Or maybe sometimes we gripe and groan and complain to God in spite of what he's done for us. But note verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. These fiery serpents, obviously, they're, they're poisoned, they're venom. Whenever they bit them, it got into the bloodstream, and it must have been tormenting. It must have been a horrible way to die because it must have inflamed them and their temperatures must have soared and their very skin must have been fitting as if it was burning. These fiery serpents, that's what it means. And so it was awful, terrible. And the people were dying. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us so Moses prayed for the people. The, the only thing you can say in their favor is even though they were, they were quick to complain, it seems that they were quick to repent. And of course it could be argued, well, if you were getting bitten by snakes, you'd be repenting too. In fact, if God was to judge us instantly for our sins, we probably would sin a lot less. But he doesn't. Sometimes it takes a long time for that judgment to come through except we asked his forgiveness. And so they went to Moses and says, we have sinned against you, we have sinned against God, please get God to take these snakes away. And Moses prayed. What would God do? Would he just simply take the snakes away? Would he burn them up? Would he make them disappear? Would he say to Moses, get out your rod and just shake it at those snakes and they'll all disappear? I mean, God could have done anything. But he asked Moses to do this very strange thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now this is this is strange for strange for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, if you remember the second commandment, you shall not make any graven image of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or the water under the earth. So it seems like God is telling Moses to break his own law. That's what that's why it seems so strange that he had asked him to do this. Now, of course, the, the people weren't to make it. Moses was to make it under God's instruction, not the people. I mean, it was through the people and through Aaron that the golden calf was made. It was their idea. It was what they wanted. This is not what they wanted. This is what God wanted. And secondly, as you probably obviously know, that the serpent in the Bible is almost always typical of Satan. It was Eve that the serpent came to. The devil in the form of the serpent came to Eve and tempted her in the garden, wasn't it? And we're at the beginning of the book, and we're at the end of the book. In Revelation 12, he's called that old serpent, the devil and Satan. So this seems strange. But of course, this wasn't an image of the devil, but you can see how this would seem odd and strange, uh, particularly to the Israelites. 
And then thirdly, it was strange because they had to look at the very thing, at least a replica of the very thing that was killing them, that was causing them death. And so for them to look at it, apart from a bit scary to look at it, the whole idea of looking at the very thing that caused them death, I mean, that just logically, rationally just wouldn't compute. But they had to look at it. They had to take God at his word. And in faith, they had to look at the bronze serpent on the pole. And if they did, then they lived. And if they didn't, they died. As simple as that. Now note that they weren't expected when they put this bronze serpent on a pole and probably put it on a high hill for them to see. They weren't expected to crawl up there on their hands and knees. They weren't expected to march around it 13 times. Or they weren't expected perhaps to gather some herbs or maybe barks of trees and mix a concoction and rub it on themselves. All they had to do was look and live. That's all. There's nothing else they could do. There's nothing else they were asked to do. Simple, wasn't it? Just look and live. But for them, maybe not so simple. It didn't make any sense. In fact, maybe it was a bit off-putting for them to look at the bronze serpent, the very thing that was killing them. But they had to do it. And as they looked, then they lived. If they didn't look, they died. It came right down to that. By the way, I talked about, uh, you know, the second commandment, not making any graven image. Much, much generations later on, when good King Hezekiah was in power and he wanted to rid the country of all the idols the Israelites had put up that were worshipping it, idols and groves. And one of the things he destroyed was that very thing, the serpent on the pole. Why? Because the people were offering incense to it and worshipping it. You know, there's a part of human nature wants something that they can see and they can touch and they can feel to worship. Fifteen hundred years later, the Lord Jesus Christ used that example that I've just talked about to show a man about the gift of salvation. So come with me to John chapter 3. It's a story you're very familiar with. But let's have a look at it and dig it into it a little bit more. John chapter 3. <clears throat> There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, which probably meant he was part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel. That was a very prestigious position to hold for any Jew. Out of the whole nation, there was only 70 chosen. He'd be a very clever man. He'd be a theologian in our terms. 
In fact, if he was living today, he probably would definitely would have a doctorate in theology and maybe he'd be a professor in a Bible school. So he was a very educated man. He was also a very wealthy man. Because later on, we know that when Jesus died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, who was friends with Nicodemus, that they took the body of Jesus and they put him in Joseph's tomb. So Joseph was a wealthy man who had a tomb built for himself at some point in his family, but he gave it to Jesus for Jesus' body. But it was Nicodemus who, preferred, who, made, uh, who gave the, the hundred pounds weight of precious spices, myrrh and aloes, to anoint the body of Jesus. That was a big, big sum of money. So he was a very wealthy man, as most of those leaders of the Jews were at that particular time. Now, most Pharisees we know were, were hypocrites, and Jesus called them out all the time on their hypocrisy. Whenever he could, he did. But not Nicodemus. Most Pharisees hated Jesus, and would do everything they could to put him down, but not Nicodemus. In fact, in John chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, that the leaders of the Jews wanted to arrest Jesus, and they sent out officers to arrest Jesus, to put him on trial. But when the officers went, and they came back without him, they said, well, where, where, where is he? And they said, well, never man spoke like this man. <laughs> I mean, you want to hear this man speak? We were amazed. And, and then they castigated them. And then Nicodemus spoke up. And he says, it's not right. We, we should give somebody a fair hearing. And then they were mad at him. And he says, are you a Galilean too? I mean, what prophet has ever come out of Galilee? So, so Nicodemus, even at that point, even though he, he was a secret admirer of Jesus, but yet he put his head above the parapet a little bit, not too far, because, I mean, he didn't want to be put out of the Sanhedrin and lose his status and position, but he put his head up out of the park just a little bit, at least to acknowledge that this is not fair what you're doing to this man. We also see that he called him rabbi, so he's deferential to Jesus and, and had respect for him. Uh, some people say he was condescending, but I don't get that from him, and certainly Jesus didn't give that impression either. And he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe, maybe, he's thinking maybe. No, he didn't say, but maybe this is the Messiah because of all these signs I'm seeing. And so here he is, a man of great status, a man of wealth, a man of education, a man who was a teacher among the Jews, who was in the Sanhedrin, a man who was high in society, all of that there, and he's coming nicely to Jesus by night, not wanting any prying eyes or ears to see or hear him because he didn't want the Sanhedrin to know he was coming to Jesus. Not that he was ashamed, but he just didn't want... This was as much as he could do at this point. And so here he is. And what does Jesus do? Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's as if Jesus completely ignored all of that. All his status, all his learning, all his wealth, all his position. He just ignored all of that. And he says, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. <laughs> just, I, I love the term born again, by the way. You know, and, and, and some terms and some 
sections of the church, they don't use that term anymore, but Jesus used it. I think it was a great term. And so he said this to Nicodemus, most assuredly, for sure, certainly. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Not all religious people are spiritual. He was one of the most religious people in all of Israel, but he wasn't spiritual. He didn't grasp this essential spiritual truth. There's people preaching today in pulpits who are very religious, but they're not spiritual. There are people who are teaching in Bible colleges today who are very religious, but not spiritual. And here's one of them here good man as he was. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time and his mother's woman be born? Thought Jesus was talking about something natural. Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? Unless one is born of the water and of the spirit... Two things. Nicodemus, first of all, Nicodemus, as you had a natural birth to come into this world, so you must have a spiritual birth to be part of the next world, to be part of the kingdom of God. And that applies to every single one of us. We were born naturally into this world, but to be born again into the kingdom of God, we've got to be born spiritually. We have to have a new birth, a different birth. This is what he's trying to tell him. A birth, most assuredly, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then he talks about the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit to wind blowing. Now, John the Baptist baptized all over the country in the Jordan. And multitudes came to him, and it was the baptism of repentance. Repent, he told them. That was his whole message. Repent. The kingdom of God's coming. You better repent. Messiah's coming. You better repent. You better be ready for him, but he's coming. What did they do? They went down to the water. What a baptism of repentance. So in a sense, Jesus said, Nicodemus, you have to repent. Now, there was Pharisees who went down to the waters to be baptized by John the Baptist, and he said, you brood of vipers. Who has warned you about the judgment to come? Bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You're only doing this because the people are doing it, but your heart's not in it. So in a sense, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you've got to repent. And you've got to be born again of the Spirit of God. That's what he's telling him. And that's the same for all of us. We had to repent. We had to be born again of the Spirit of God. Born again from above. 
That's what saved us, wasn't it? Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And then, and then, and then, he gives them this wonderful example that happened 1,500 years before. And Nicodemus would know this. He would know this story by heart. He would, I mean, you have to understand that these, these teachers of the law, these people memorized not just chapters, but whole books of the Bible. So he would know this since he was a wee boy. But Jesus now is bringing it to his attention because he never, ever, ever would have thought about it this way. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Ah, isn't it wonderful how Jesus, just in conversation, can just go back into the Old Testament and just pluck out a wonderful example to try to open the eyes of this blind man. Good man as he was, but he just was spiritually blind. He couldn't see it. So Jesus gives him an example of something that perhaps he could see and maybe begin to understand. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, when Jesus used the term lifted up, it would mean two things to Nicodemus. One which you'd be very familiar with from the Old Testament particularly, which would be his Bible, and one which he was living through in Roman society. As far as the Old Testament is concerned, to be lifted up, to mean to be honored, to be elevated, to be glorified, to be lifted up. And he would understand that. That's what that would mean. If somebody was lifted up, that would mean they'd be honored, they'd be exalted, they'd be glorified. But lifted up in his day, under the Roman Empire meant something completely different, the total opposite to that. It meant to be crucified, to be lifted up on a cross. That's what it meant, and he knew that. Everybody knew that. Crucifixion was a common event in those days. Thousands of people got crucified. They could see it all the time. You know, in the 1800s, in the 1800s, even here, execution by hanging was public. People could go out and see it. Great crowds would go out to see it. And they talked about, are you going to the hanging today? I mean, it was nearly like entertainment for people. But in those days, it would be, are you going to see so-and-so lifted up today? And everybody knew what that meant. It meant to be crucified. But you see, here's the problem that Nicodemus would have, that all the disciples had, that the two on the road to Emmaus had that we preached about last Sunday morning. They could not understand a suffering Messiah. They couldn't get that. 
They could understand a glorified Messiah. They could understand a Messiah lifted up in glory. Because that was their great hope, that Messiah would come and he would be lifted up. And he would be honored and exalted. They could understand that. That's what they were hoping for. But to be lifted up on a cross, a Messiah, lifted up on a Roman cross, die as a, as a common criminal, it just, it just didn't compute with them. But you know, here's a man of great letters, religiously speaking. And he, he would know about Daniel. He, he would know about Daniel chapter 7, for instance, where Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Same terminology Jesus used. One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. To, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Then all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Who is that talking about? Christ, the Messiah. And he would understand that. That's what he would think about being lifted up and being glorified. But then he would forget or not understand. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26, where it talks about Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks, which is relating to the end times and Christ's part in the end times. In verse 26, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Messiah shall be cut off. They couldn't understand that. How could Messiah be cut off? Who would cut him off? Why would he be cut off? And so they're all struggling with this. All the disciples, all the followers of Christ. And that's why, of course, we keep telling you, when Jesus died on that cross, they were absolutely shattered. Their faith was shattered in a million pieces. They just couldn't get that. But Jesus here has given them the reason why he has to be lifted up. In John 12, 32, he says, And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me, this signifying which death he should die. So he made it very, very clear in 12, 32, John 12, 32. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The serpent on the pole in the wilderness had no poison, had no venom, had no sting, had no fangs. It would do them no harm. In fact, it would do them good if they looked. That would save their life. What is killing mankind? Sin. The poison of sin. All of us has been bitten by the serpent. Amen? Amen. All of us. We were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. Sin is in us. But we look to the one who's lifted up. Hallelujah. In him was no sin. No poison. No sin. No corruption. Absolute perfection. And we look to him. In Romans 8 and 3, it makes this very clear. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that was weak through the flesh, note this, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Just as that brazen servant was in the likeness of the servant, in the form of the servant. Jesus came in the form of man, in the likeness of man. In fact, he was a man. He took on humanity, but without the sin, without the poison, without the venom. Are you still with me? That's what he became. That's what he took on in his life. And thank God he did. He came for us and he went to that cross to die for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, you don't need to turn to it. Let me read this to you. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin, who, he, he who was absolutely perfect, Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Pilate's wife says, have nothing to do with this just man. Even the thief on the cross, one of them said, this man has done nothing amiss. In him was no sin. <laughs> but he came in the likeness of sinful men. And on that cross, he took upon himself all of our sins. Thank you, Lord. Now, it says he became sin for us. He didn't become a sinner for us because then he would need a save too. He didn't need a savior. But he became sin for us. He became the sin offering for us. You see, in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, and I would have loved to have preached this in this series, but I couldn't. But in the Old Testament, in the Day of Atonement, there was two goats. And one was killed and its blood sprinkled before the Lord. But the other one, the scapegoat, all the sins of the people, the priest came and he put his hands and his thumbs on the head of the goat and pressed it, signifying that the sins of the people is being transferred onto the goat. And having done that, then it's led out into the desert. And it's gone, it's lost in the desert. So Jesus became our sin offering. All the sins of the world was pressed upon him and he took that and died for us on that cross. And so you can see here the example Jesus is giving to Nicodemus is a perfect example of what he was about to do, not only for him, but for the whole world and for us today. And so what happened 1,500 years before Christ, Christ, that was a type and a shadow of Christ to come, and he fulfilled that perfectly. And that still applies to every single human being today who wants to be saved and to be born again of God's Spirit. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now here's the thing. Just as some of those Israelites would have difficulty just looking at the servants, all they had to do. And so there's men and women today who have difficulty just looking to Christ on the cross. 
it seems too easy because we want to do something to earn our salvation. And religion has all kinds of rules and regulations, has all kinds of things that people's got to go through in order to earn salvation, in order to earn something with God. And Jesus says, no, I'll be lifted up. Just look to me. I've done everything that ever needs to be done. You don't have to do anything. Just look to me. Repent. Look to me. And if you look to me, that's all you've got to do. It's all you have to do. You know formulas to do. You have nothing to work up. You don't have to do all kinds of... You can't buy this. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. All you've got to do is look. Look and live. The gospel is so simple that people can't see it because we want to do something. But it's by grace we're saved through faith. That's not of ourselves. Not of our works, it's a gift of God so that none of us could boast. If we could do something, we'd boast about it. We'd say, well, I did more than him. I did more than her. But God says, no, there's nothing you can do. Just look to my son on that cross and trust him. It takes faith to do that, doesn't it? And there's some people, they don't believe that. They say that God would never put his son on the cross to save us. That's not right. There's people who preach against that in the Christian church, would you believe? And yet it's the most marvelous thing. The most glorious thing. And Jesus talked about it in John 3 here. So all you've got to do is look and live. Hallelujah. Every Easter for 40 days, Wilson takes that cross out in Moira Main Street as a witness for people to look. And people are curious. And they look. And they wonder, who's that wee man with that cross? Standing with his motorbike ladders on. What is he doing there with that cross on? And some gets curious. And then they go over and they talk to him. And then he tells them. And they're walking past and they'll say hello. And they'll say hello. And it's a nice sunny day and they've got a few minutes. And they'll say, what is the, what's that cross for? Why are you standing here? And he'll tell them. Look and live. Let me say this in closing. We know, we said it earlier, that Nicodemus was a secret admirer. And we know at the end of it, when Jesus did die on that cross, that he and Joseph of Arimathea took his body, buried it, made a preparation for the burial. But what point, what was the tipping point for Nicodemus? When did, when did that happen? When did he actually say, do you know what? I now believe he is the Messiah. Could it be? We can't say for sure. But could it be? Did he and Joseph of Arimathea, and this is not even a stretch, this is probably, you could believe this, were they standing with the crowds who looked at Jesus afar on Calvary's hill? Probably, because they immediately went for his body. And could it be that when Jesus was lifted up on that cross, could that be the moment when Nicodemus looked and said, do you know what? I remember what he said to me. I remember he told me that that dark night 
that if I be lifted up, Son of Man must be lifted up. And look, there he is, the Son of God being lifted up. And maybe that's the moment when he came to Christ and acknowledged him as his Messiah and his Savior. All of us at some point here, believers, even though we're maybe little, all of us at one point looked and lived. We went to the cross, didn't we? As Johnny was singing this morning, and we acknowledged the Son of God dying for me on the cross. Amen. And so, look and live. That's all we've got to do. Repent, turn to him, look to him, and then live for him for the rest of our lives. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you paid the ultimate price. You did all the hard work for our salvation. And you made it so easy for us that even a child can receive it. Thank you, Lord, that we have looked and we have lived because of what you have done for us. And we bless you for it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.